Hello, I'm Anna. And I'm Clarice. And this is The Next Supremes, an American Horror Story Rewatch podcast. Okay, so we're going to be tackling episode two, which is called Home Invasion. And just to start off with a very quick synopsis, in this episode, Ben Harmon goes to Boston to talk with the student he had an affair with in the first episode. While he is away, his wife, Vivian, and daughter, Violet, deal with three home invaders intent on reacting, reenacting a murder that happened in the house in 1968. Okay, so let's dig into it. So... What did you think of this episode as a whole? This one's interesting because we're not quite like full, full cranked. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're not, it's not, we're not a full American horror story. We are at the, the, it's like starting, it's starting. So this one kind of, I would say largely makes sense, but we're starting to get into this like really, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like lurid lots of murder lots yeah. of craziness um 150 characters popping in for two minutes like so i think <laughs> it's like starting to ramp up in this i mean how about you so this episode starts with a flashback to 1968 and it's the previous inhabitants of this house and it's a bunch of nurses who are getting ready to go see The Doors play live, which uh, is, as a cultural marker to place us in the late 60s, I absolutely love. And they get attacked in their own home by this serial killer. And it's very, it's actually, I found that whole scene very scary, partly because a home invasion is literally one of my my deepest most horrifying fears and it's it's mainly the main reason why i've never lived in a house i mean why i've lived in a house once and i hated it this is uh why because i understand why you'd feel that way because this is one of the first really instances that we start to get scenes inspired by by real murders which is a Mm. a through line through the whole of american horror story uh which the this I mean the serial killer in the show is meant to be fictional. He's called R. Franklin, but he's based on a guy called Richard Speck who murdered eight student nurses in Chicago in in 1966. So this mm-hmm. takes place in 1968. So I think that's where it it comes from. You know, it's the American Horror Story is so interesting where it it draws on that sort of all those sort of real basic primal fears that we have and it kind of mm-hmm. plays it makes me think of like a cat playing with a bird <laughs> and it's sort of like playful and scary and and it really sort of I don't know it plays with your with our sort of emotional connection to those kind of horrific crimes and traumas and how we relate to them it Just- also I think plays into the fear of basic human goodness and decency being something that will get you killed and it's something that comes back in this episode because uh, some murder groupies try to recreate this particular murder in the same house but 
the the idea that these young women open the door to try to help a man who is deceiving them into thinking that he's in trouble. You know, he does this whole charade where he has blood on his face. He knocks at their door asking for help because he's been in an accident or something. And, you know, this is something that um, Alex, Malcolm McDowell's character, also does in A Clockwork Orange. It's preying on people's goodness by playing by placing himself as a victim and asking for help and gaining access to to their home to their safe space and taking advantage of that of that kindness which is really distressing i think maybe even more so now because we're all sequestered in our homes as a way to try to contribute to the common good so the idea of someone taking advantage of people's kindness as they're in their house somehow strikes even sharper right now oh that's interesting i'm less scared of that at the moment (laughs) because i'm like safe in the knowledge that nobody's coming to my house so i don't have to answer the door i don't have to answer when anything's ringing i don't have to do anything right now i'm safe (laughs) inside my home (laughs) like i was thinking this the other day i was like what are the weird advantages of this lockdown is that I have less like baseline fear of getting murdered which is ridiculous it's such that is such a ridiculous thought to have and I was instantly (laughs) mad at myself for having it but it's interesting it's interesting that you say that because I just I had the exact opposite thought which I don't I don't know if this is interesting to just say as a side note um but the the main nurse in this prologue flashback mm-hmm. is uh played by Rosa Salazar who uh is a leader in a leader battle angel so oh well there's another there's another casting tidbit that I'll bring up later on <laughs> okay I don't know what the other one is so well, that was the one that I noticed cuz I was like I've seen those giant eyes somewhere else before <laughs> Oh, well, shall we jump over to the present reenactment of this murder? Because the, the kind of the lead storyline of the episode is this group of... And the reason that we're shown this flag, flashback sequence is because there's a group of murder groupies who are... who try to recreate this with whoever happens to be living in this house. And that's the Harmon family. So we get the scene where a young woman this time, not a young man, has blood on her face and is knocking at the door and asking Vivian to let her in and help her. She's not doing a very good job because she's so fucking suspicious looking from the very beginning. She's like, let me in, man. Yeah. <laughs> she's got this great line where she's like, what kind of a woman are you? I said I'm in trouble. And she's just like, tell me what kind of trouble. She's like, I'm just a trouble. I'm a trouble. Yeah. You know, trouble. Like, that is such an interesting scene to me because I think, like, if I was in that situation, what would I do? Because y- you are immediately suspicious of this woman. And it's like, at what point do our, our reservations and suspicions, like, stop us from from being good citizens? Because, you know, we just want to be careful just in case. It's really kind of subtly provocative scene because I think you kind of have to put yourself in that situation while watching it Mm -hmm. yeah and also the 
I think it really enhances uh, Vivian's character building as well. She's such a bougie queen that I'm so not surprised that she would react in this way, that she would be suspicious of anyone trying to enter her house, that she would be suspicious of anyone who says that they're in trouble, uh, that she would instantly try to kind of downplay someone who might be in need of help or kind of try to protect herself above all costs. Is she wrong, though? This is what I find so interesting. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's framed in a way where you do kind of go, oh, just let her in, like, be a good, you know, citizen. You should always open the door and help someone if they're in trouble. But then it's like, well, wait, this woman is acting so strangely. Mm -hmm. I don't know, because I don't know what I'd do, because I'm quite a, like... I'm a bit of a scaredy cat. So I think if some lady was like not answering my questions, I don't know if I would just be like, come on in. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I don't live (laughs) on a ground floor house and will never live in a ground floor house. I don't, I don't want to have to deal with that ethical dilemma. That is true. I also don't live in a ground floor house. So no one is going to be coming. But I am fascinated by how, the concept of a murder groupie comes up in this episode because it's such a real life phenomenon as well of people being fascinated by murders, by serial killers and sort of not directly worshipping them, but having the same pattern of fan behavior that, you know, you can apply to actors and actresses, to musicians and bands. You apply that to murderers what do you think about that there is um have you seen the netflix show dark tourist i've seen some episodes of it so there is this fascinating episode which is about this i mean it's partially about other things but they go on a, i think it's a jeffrey a jeffrey dharma murder tour and they meet this mm-hmm. woman who is like a dharma stan i don't know how else to put it yeah and they take her into this office and they play her some of his recordings and some of his recordings in court, I think. I'm very bad at remembering things. So <laughs> <laughs> I might be describing this wrong. <laughs> you are right, because uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's, there's a lot of recordings of him speaking and of him giving two camera interviews. Um, I mildly ashamed that I know a lot of this stuff myself. Not because I'm a Dahmer stan, but because I I do have a a dark fascination with the history of murder. God, this is going to be terrible for me. Anyway, please continue. We're doing an American Horror Story podcast. (laughs) I think we can assume that about both of us to some degree. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and this, this woman, while she's listening, the face she makes is horrifying. She's Mm. like, she's like turned on she's like leaning over in her chair trying to like she's oh it's like (laughs) and I I I, you know I don't want to uh you know judge and vilify this woman but because I think it's something that society we're all like a little bit guilty of because we Mm. all do find something fascinating about murder I think I think most people are guilty of of you know having those late night wikipedia sessions where you just read about grisly murders yep i think yeah everybody does that it's pretty normal thank you and and it it is really interesting that as a society it is it's something we do and i think it is some kind of outlet for something i don't think 
being interested in this stuff equates to I would like to murder. Mm-hmm. I think it's so, yeah, it's something to do because if you understand the most horrific thing possible, that's almost comforting because you know the worst of humanity and you understand what the worst of humanity looks like and how they act and how they think and then maybe that will help you in your own life you know recognizing it in other people or at least, I don't know even if <laughs> to make yourself a better person <laughs> so you know I don't know I think there's some this some strange comfort in 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 the desire to just understand humanity at its most extreme I'll take that and also my other fun casting tidbit is that I recognized out of the three murder groupies, it's two women and one man, Dallas. And he is played by Kyle Davis. I recognize him from an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where he played a rapper that D dates for an episode. And uh, the gang convinces her that he is mentally challenged. And that's that's the point of the whole episode. That's it. That, that's, that's, an interesting tidbit, that's, that's my tidbit. <laughs> it's not very exciting. <laughs> that's a good spot. I'm not very good at, at spotting like a one actor who was in one episode once or something. So that yeah. is, I'm impressed. It's one of my uh, very useless talents. <laughs> no, all I could do was spot a leader battle angel because that movie will never leave my brain now. <laughs> to finish up with the murder groupies, they get uh, murdered by the very victims of the murder that they're trying to reenact, which I thought was a fitting uh, closure of, of that particular adventure for the murder house. But this is also the episode where we meet Hayden, who is played by Kate Mara and is Ben's former student and former mistress. Which is sister of Rudy in case anyone doesn't know yeah. I mean they look the same, so I feel like they do look very similar yes. <laughs> Hayden was supposed to be a one episode character and they kept expanding her role because Ryan Murphy and Brad Feldchuk liked Kate Mara's performance so much that's interesting because I I actually yeah I do really like how she she does this role because the character is she's completely like hysterical and I think especially in later episodes it mm. it becomes really hard to understand her motivations or like what she's doing but i think she's she's such a talented actor that i still kind of believe that that woman might be real and it's not just you know some weird parody of a woman of like a, the parody of the the jilted lover or something even when she's screaming her head off it's like okay this is also the appearance, uh, the first screen appearance of Travis, who is Constance's boy toy and is a beautiful, beautiful young man. Mm. Which is, this is, I, I'm sorry to fast forward to, to one of our, our little special weekly categories, <laughs> but talking about the naked man moments. Um, I mean, because this is the majority of his appearance in this episode, let's be real. Yeah, I don't think Travis wears a shirt ever. Ever. <laughs> but it's interesting this is not the butt, this is like the reverse side yeah. of like how far out <laughs> how far down can we go until the the senses come in with like a little black bar. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Cuz like just like the camera's patty down and you're like 
it's just gonna keep going yeah like how low cut are those jeans travis that's what i want to know very low cut <laughs> but this, what do you think of this kind of quite tender but also quite sad moment between constance and him i like that that they're presenting this relationship where you know he he genuinely has affection for her and and in this scene you know you can say i don't know it's kind of quite it's quite sweet and i think you do have this this great tragedy around constance because she has only ever the only value she's ever attached to herself is her beauty right mm. she, she doesn't see the world outside of anything like that and that's you know really affected addy her daughter because now addy only thinks of herself of uh, you know what what value she has through having beauty or not having beauty or having conventional beauty and not having conventional beauty and it's mm. like the, that whole situation with the family is so it's really sad and i think you have a lot of sympathy for her in these moments because she i don't know she was never taught to treasure anything else about herself it's such a a visceral scene i think because there's this great line where constance tells travis there isn't a single door in the world that beauty can open you know she's really admiring uh his looks and his youth can totally see in Jessica Lang's performance kind of Constance remembering what it was like to be so beautiful herself um, but then when their tryst is being interrupted by Addie asking for, for attention from her mother she puts her into this closet full of mirrors and it's so gut-wrenching first of all that she would lock up her her daughter in what was in a closet that was very reminiscent of the kind of the torture closet in Matilda. Oh, I thought you're gonna say Carrie. Oh God, the Jesus closet and Carrie. God, you're right. No, I instantly went to Matilda because I think that okay. just scarred me. <laughs> They're both equally valid in this situation. Yeah, and then Addie kind of screaming from that torture closet as Constance walks away to go fuck her boy toy it's almost like in that moment Addie is like it's just a symbol to her of of things that she thinks that she's lost because that's a sad thing that like Constance is obviously still so completely beautiful and you're looking at Jessica Lange talking about herself not being beautiful and you're like what (laughs) what are you what what are you saying so it's just like it's such a a sad sort of mix of false impressions and you know the mirrors they're looking into the mirror and what's looking back out of both of these women is something completely different you know that both of these women just don't see anything beautiful about themselves is it's just so sad yeah and then in this episode as well Constance tries to poison Violet and is it in retaliation for Vivian sort of um, grabbing Addie and forcing her to not come into the house without permission anymore? So the cupcakes are weird because the cupcakes, she bakes the cupcakes and then she brings them to the house to Vivian but mm. says cup, like, cupcakes are for Violet. Yes. Wait, 
that's confusing because in this episode, then why would the cupcakes be Violet if you don't? Well, I thought that the cupcakes were for Violet because it was a sort of, well, you misbehaved with my daughter, so I'm gonna cause harm to your daughter in retaliation. That makes sense. But then again, I, it's, I think it's because I think that, I think, well, I think I read Constance as quite a petty woman so it seems like something she would do and she's so specific as well about um vivian not eating the cupcakes herself yeah but then i I, the cupcakes don't quite make sense to me because then vivian has a bit of the cupcake and she's fine and you know that the cupcake has Mm -hmm. what is it it's a cack is that the right thing yeah that's the right thing yeah making your stomach bleed and like it sounds really bad (laughs) Well, it is bad because one of the murder groupies eats it and then she is just vomiting blood everywhere. But then why does Vivian has she we see her have some of the cupcake, right? Is this a plot hole? This might be a plot hole because I was waiting. I was like, is this is this cupcake or did she do you have to have a certain amount of Ipecac for it to have any effect? And she just somehow didn't eat enough of the cupcake. Does she actually eat it, though? Do we see her read it or do we just see her kind of grab it and cut it in half? But then she never actually bites into it, does she? Oh, maybe my greedy little mind. <laughs> you ate the cupcake in your mind. Yeah, because I haven't had the cupcakes in a while. I don't have much like sugary food in my house right now. So I think my brain was like, want cupcake. <laughs> Desire cupcake. Eat cupcake. Uh, that might have been what happened. <laughs> so apologies to everyone. The cupcake police. My, my hunger ruined <laughs> my perception of what happened in this episode. This is also one of the of the moments where we see the house and all of its ghosts trying to protect itself. Because Tate and the ghosts of the murdered nurses help kill the murder groupies and there's this beautiful moment right where Tate and Moira and Constance sort of rally together yeah I like that this this season keeps coming back to the idea that the house is alive and the house the house is both alive and it's like a community and I Mm. think this crops up in quite a few seasons of American Horror Story Mm -hmm. is is these are stories about people that are just bound together by by like death or like destruction or odd situations you know like the next season in asylum it's everybody who's stuck in this place together and Mm. they have to find ways to become allies and sometimes even friends and so I like that we're starting to get this theme come through that even though Constance and Mora absolutely hate each other when it comes to as you said protecting the house Mm -hmm. and and I guess protecting themselves in a way because if if people found out, if the world found out what was really going on in this, you know, lovely turn of the century home, which looks so bright and sunny from the outside, you know, it would be complete chaos. And so they're kind of, it's like in Birds of Prey. <laughs> I don't know why I think Birds of Prey, but you know, it's all the women who are kind of enemies, but then they, they, they're like, well, I guess we're going to have to work together. <laughs> It's kind of a bit of a birds of prey moment because 
everyone's just realizing that they have to put their own personal grievances aside for like the greater good of the house. I love it. And also there's this wonderful line that Constance says, I think, where actually I can't remember which one of them says it, but they're like, oh, we need to make sure that Ben keeps treating Tate. And Tate is really pushing all the buttons in this episode. Oh, he's been a dick. <laughs> Tate is not the the MVP of this episode. Mm-mm. I guess this just kind of isn't his episode. We don't really see him do stuff. But I feel like all of his decisions in this episode are, are kind of weird and baffling because if he if he wants to be dating Violet, I guess dating is a bit of a... <laughs> stretched for what they're doing but if he wants to be with Violet then why is he antagonizing the father so much is mm-hmm. it's kind of I feel like he's still a little bit of a mystery to us at this point yeah and also his sort of weird horror powers keep popping up I'm I'm interested he is I think the whole idea of Tate and I think especially in this episode we're meant to almost see him as or seem to be developing a relationship to Tate as viewers, as, say, these murder groupies do to a serial killer or a murderer that they worship or are obsessed with. You know, this idea of we know that he's bad, we know that he's done some fucked up shit, but we kind of want to see where it's going and we want to see him do some more fucked up shit. Because he looks real good doing it. With his little Kurt Cobain haircut. Yeah, and his little uh, Normal People Scare Me t-shirt. I feel like one character we have not talked about yet at mm. all, which I think maybe we should bring up now, is yeah. Larry Harvey. <gasps> You're so right. Thank you. Played by Dennis O'Hare, who I love. One love of the great. Him. Because we did meet him in the last episode, but mm. I think in these two episodes, he's just kind of repeating himself a little bit he's just this man who keeps coming up to Ben saying hey I burned my family alive do you want to be friends <laughs> Ben's like no <laughs> so I feel like maybe that's I feel like that's all we need to know about Larry at the moment he just keep and he keeps bothering him on his runs which is weird because we know that Larry has a connection to the house because that's where he says that that's he used to live in the house that's where he burned his family alive but he keeps following Ben on his runs <laughs> to be like, hi. <laughs> Do you want to be friends? <laughs> Do you want to be fr- Hey, I burned my family. Do you want to be friends? I also have terminal cancer. Do you want to be friends? Oh, yeah. He's- what I like about that character is, is like the stuff around him is so dark, but he's also such a great parody of that person, like the oversharer. The person you meet and like within two minutes you just know everything about them and you're like okay wow you're so right and also someone who I think to a degree genuinely is trying to help Ben as far as we know so far but it's just incredibly socially clumsy like he finds Ben kind of crying in a alleyway or a tunnel of some sort and he just sort of pops up like oh fancy seeing you here in this dark alleyway where i just love to hang out (laughs) definitely not been following you (laughs) definitely not stalking you don't worry (laughs) yeah he i guess he in this show functions as like 
so I rewatched Friday the 13th recently, and he's like the the guy who comes at the beginning, and he's like, don't go to the camp. That's <laughs> camp hard. You know, the kind of crazy guy that everybody yeah. dismisses because, you know, Larry Larry knows everything. Like, he, he's been in the house. He's he's done a murder like he knows what the deal with the house is and he's trying to warn the Harmon family but just like does not have the vocabulary for it or the I don't know just Mm -hmm. doesn't have the social graces to be able to just say hey (laughs) here's what's going on the house is very very haunted you should probably just go (laughs) because otherwise you might also do a murder who knows (laughs) do a murder <laughs> it's like the old time he did it in the old times so it's like i did a murder <laughs> nah. i also love that this episode just further doubles down on how much of a flop ben is and i kind of love him for it he is a terrible therapist can we just discuss that he literally is fooled by a obviously not terribly smart murder groupie who scams him into taking her on as a client he also lets tate play around with him and taunt him by developing and flaunting his relationship with his daughter to his face doesn't know how to deal with that either there's a wonderful terribly boring scene but i loved of him just trying to get through to a a police station to try to report Tate as a potential harmful individual and he can't manage to do that he really needs an assistant like someone who can actually manage his practice properly because he has very few clients he's not doing so well with either one of them I I feel like it should be part of your basic training to know (laughs) that if, if someone is presenting a threat you should know exactly who to contact and what to say like how does he have his license if I don't know he is um what uh you know i'll mention her several times i do have other friends but my friend ruby who's the only other ahs stan that i know refers to this trope as the handsome flop the handsome flop that's true because everyone's so forgiving of him because it's like those eyes yeah those little blue eyes they blue or like gray they're like bluey gray i guess i don't know because i was too busy focusing on all the naked butt shots that's true That's true. But Travis, hey, Travis really put the work in. (laughs) Good job. So shall we move on to our categories? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is your top quote of the episode? I feel like there's there's no like real huge quotes that jumped out to me. I feel like because a lot of this episode is quite quite sad. I feel like but I, I just quite liked Bianca, the murder groupie who um, uh, manages to get into therapy with Ben. <laughs> she, she keeps talking about this dream she has where it's just Final Destination, where she's in the elevator and the doors close on her and she gets chopped in half. Mm-hmm. And he comes up with this whole ridiculous analogy of it's, oh, it's because you feel really cut off because you're suppressing something. And then she just goes, no, I think it's because I'm just afraid of being cut in half. <laughs> I just like the bluntness of that. I think that was my favorite line. How about you? I think mine was of uh, Larry in that trying to be friends conversation underneath the creepy bridge where Ben tells him 
something like, you murdered your entire family. And Larry is like, yes, but I was never unfaithful. Oh, yes. <laughs> he says it so sincerely. He really does. It really touched me. Like, like, yeah, sure. I'm not <laughs> I think we already discussed this, but naked man moment of the episode. Oh, tra- Travis. Yes. Travis is very, very objectively attractive. And is heavily objectified. Oh, yeah. On this show. I mean, I'm <laughs> surprised Travis. they even gave him a name. Yeah, he's just not like abs man. <laughs> Scott also got good hair. He's got layers. And who would you say was the MVP of the episode? Hmm. I feel like it's still just kind of Constance at the moment because we're in a situation where most of the characters don't really know what's going on. And so it's very hard to have power when you don't really know what the situation is. Mm. And Constance is kind of one of the few people who who sees what's happening. Mm-hmm. and And also she makes cupcakes that have <laughs> Ipecac in them. So that's a power move. That's a definitely a power move. And also she gets to bang Travis. Exactly. So cupcakes, Travis, <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> I'm going to say Tate only because he starts off real bratty. And then by the end of it, he's back on track, redeeming himself in the eyes of Violet, at least. And kind of really enforcing uh, his stay in the Harmon family. That's true. That's a good point. What about, I think, your favorite insensitive historical reference of the week? I feel like, I feel like to me, it was just the random bringing up of Manson. <laughs> Bianca just brings him up because she says that the the serial killer that they're all obsessed with is that Manson, like he was before Manson, man, he changed the culture which is a statement. <laughs> yeah. I feel like American Horror Story does this a lot. It's just like Manson comes up every season. How can we fit Charles Manson into this <laughs> season somehow? And he, he will actually appear in later seasons. Don't worry. Yeah, He's coming. <laughs> I would but... genuinely love a whole American crime story on Manson, though. That would be incredible, I think. True. True. Because I feel like... We often don't get very in-depth explorations of like what actually drove him because mm. I, there is, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, Um, you must remember this. I was just about to mention, I think yeah. that season is one of the best explorations of the cultural phenomenon of Manson. And, do, and does such a great job of emphasizing like the racist aspect mm-hmm. of Manson's car, which I, I know like obviously we all know that he was a terrible horrific murderer but i think like somehow the the racism of it gets lost and i think it yeah. is very important to who yeah. he was and what he was trying to do yeah. uh, so i would love to see a season that actually went into that and mm-hmm. fully explored wh- who he was as a person and what was and i think that would help kind of I don't know, break down a little. I think we we do culturally have a bit too much of a weird obsession over Manson. And I think like with with uh, What's Part of Time in Hollywood last year, mm-hmm. that sort of whole portrayal of him, I think. I mean, I don't I'm not 
I, I didn't hate that movie and I didn't think, oh, it's horrific and damaging. But it's like, oh, this is a very specific version of Manson that we all have inside our minds. It would be great to see the more truthful one, I guess. Mm-hmm. One film that actually didn't get a massive or even a release, maybe, in the UK. But I really thought tried to do something quite different about the the aftershock and the after effects of the Manson murders was Charlie Says by Mary Harron, which really focuses on the lead three female Manson acolytes and the years that they spent in prison afterwards and how they processed their role in those crimes and their relationship to Manson. I really want to see that. I think mine would be a very... Much less deep than yours. Mine is a very throwaway line that happens at the very beginning of the episode when we're in the flashback in 1968 and some of the nurses are going down the stairs to, you know, go to see the doors perform. And one of them is like, I don't want to mislight my fire. And the other one just says, oh, she just wants to blow Jim Morrison. And I cackle every time. Because it's so like forced in, especially because <laughs> Age of Aquarius is playing during that scene. It's like, we get it. It's not... And- and also in that uh, flashback, they have the theme from Psycho. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't do the meh, 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 <laughs> which is my favorite part of the Psycho theme. So I don't like how it's used in that episode. But yeah, it is. It's just really like <laughs> it's the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Let's name a few things from the late 60s. So what's coming up in the next episode? Yeah, so next week we've got an episode that's actually called Murder House, which is ironic because it's what the season is called now, but it wasn't called Murder House when it first aired, so blah, 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 confusing. Uh, And just to give you a quick preview, after putting the house back on the market, Vivian learns about his first residence. Ben's visitor causes him to further unravel. Constance and Moira's history is revealed. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So we'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of American Horror Story Murder House. In the meantime, send us your thoughts on Twitter. I'm at Clarice Lou. And I am on Anna B. Demented. 